if you fought for them, fight for us now today. See, David understood that if God did not fight for them, they were without hope in battle. They were without hope in battle. And isn't that some of us today, we have to remember the victories of the past. We have to remember what God has done for us in the past, how he took us into the promised land over and over again. It's been his countenance. It's been his favor. It's been his right hand, right? It's been his right arm in our lives. And then we find ourselves in a place of despair and hopelessness. And we, we have to know and recognize like David, Lord, if, if you don't come with me, if it's not your right hand, if it's not your countenance like in the past, then I am hopeless because I cannot do it on my own. Right? David understood that when it came to Israel, whether it was victory or defeat, either or, God's hand was behind it. Right? Oftentimes in scripture we see that nations, God would allow nations to take over the nation of Israel and, and, to, and to purchase them as slaves. Right? And oftentimes Israel was a slave nation to different countries. And it was by God's allowing. He understood it. That's why he says, you have given us like sheep intended for food. You make us a reproach. You do. You're allowing it, God. Whether defeat or sold into slavery, it was by God's allowing. And David continues here to describe the distress that Israel is feeling. As we read in the, in the 16 verses, not only did he feel ashamed, as we read in verse 15, my dishonor is continually before me. He felt ashamed and low, not just because of his enemies, but also because he felt abandoned by God. He felt hopeless. He told, Lord, I need you to be the same God you were for my fathers in the past. I need you to be the, that same God in the present today. I need your countenance. I need your favor. I need your right hand towards me right now. Right? If you kept the promise of victory for our fathers, why do we find ourselves in, the, in our present situation today is what David is saying. Right? Is that's what he's asking. He said, Lord, if you did it for them, why do we find ourselves here today? And don't you and I sometimes feel that way? Lord, you've done it in the past for them. Or even for our own selves. You did it in the past for us before. Why do I find myself in this position today? David and the nation of Israel, why do we find ourselves in this position today? And David starts to learn. Because God has not promised to keep us from the trials but to be with us in the trials, right? Just a few chapters ago, Psalms 34, verse 19, David says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then it says in verse 17, the third point of this chapter, a cry. The cry is, we have remained faithful, please help us. Verse 17, all this has come upon us. Right? All of what he just said in those verses, he said, all this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Wow. Look what David says. He's to cry. Lord, we have remained faithful. What happened? You did it for our fathers, and we continue to remain faithful to you and obedient to you, and we need your help today as you gave it to our fathers in the past. Look, all this has happened to us, verse 17, but we have not forgotten you. Lord, we have remained faithful amid the trial. Please help us. That's the cry here. 
We have not forgotten you. We've kept our character. We've kept our obedience. What David is saying is despite feeling abandoned, they remembered him and remained faithful to his promise. What was the promise of God? Because he says, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant, with your promise. What was the, so you guys remember the promise of God to the nation of Israel. In the Old, Test, the Old Testament covenant, God promised to bless or curse Israel based upon their obedience or disobedience to him. Deuteronomy chapter 28. He said, I will bless you upon your obedience or I will curse you based upon your disobedience to me. And what David is saying, he felt obligated to remind God of this covenant, right? Israel had done their part, and he was asking God to fulfill his. He says, we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Lord, please remember your covenant. Please bless us. Please protect us. Please deliver us. Because we have remained faithful to the covenant of obedience, of not forgetting you. Right? He felt obligated to remind God. Lord, we've, we're doing our part. Please fulfill yours. Right? And then look what happens. In verse 18, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Israel's heart and conduct were still committed to God. He was not claiming. David was not claiming perfection. But that the nation as a whole, they were devoted to God in their heart and in their life. That's why it says our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. He said, my heart nor my life, they're still committed to you. And the nation of Israel, we still remain faithful to you. Lord, keep your covenant. Keep your promise. You said that you would bless us. Please, Lord, we're crying out to you. Help us. That's the cry here of David. Right? And then he says, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Think about that imagery because he uses... Poetry, as you guys know, right, in the Psalms. He says, you have broken us. David felt that the obedience and faithfulness of Israel had been answered, had been answered by disaster from God. Have you ever felt like that in your life? I've been obedient. I'm serving in the ministry. I'm devoted to the Lord. I'm being faithful to what he's called me to do. And I feel that his response to my life is disaster because David and the nation of Israel found themselves in defeat. And they know that God's been faithful in the past. But he says, I need him to be present today. I need him to be present right now. Lord, where are you? He says, you have broken us in the place of jackals. You have done it, Lord, is what David is saying. What are jackals? In the Bible, we see jackals in multiple, uh, multiple verses, often described as dragons or wolves or monsters. And, and, and what he's saying, he's saying, Lord, you have broken us severely in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. This is, all he, this is how he feels, right? Look what Spurgeon says. It's better to be broken by God than from God. Better to be in the place of dragons or jackals than a place of deceivers. It's better to be broken by God than from God. Spurgeon says, right? Better to be, place, be in the place of dragons than of deceivers. And he says, you have broken me. And then what happens in verse 20, he says, if we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched, or stretched out our hand towards a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep 
for the slaughter. Look what David tells God. He continues to affirm the nation's faithfulness to God and not to idols. He says, we haven't stretched our, hand, our hands out to foreign gods, right? And, and, and even if David, and this is what he's saying here, even if David lied about his obedience or the nation's obedience to God, he knew that he could not hide that from God. That's what he says there. Would not God search this out, for he knows the secrets of the heart? Lord, if we had forgotten you, if we had lifted up our arms to a foreign god or to an idol, would you not have known? I cannot lie to you. You, you can search out this matter. You know, he says, you know the secrets of the heart. We've remained faithful. But verse 22, yet, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In light of their claimed obedience to God, they still suffer death. He says, Lord, I don't get it. I need your help right now. We've been obedient. We have not forgotten. We have not turned to idols. What's going on? And then David says, for your sake, listen to that, for your sake, we are killed all day long. In their faithfulness to God and because of their faithfulness to him, the nation of Israel suffered. See, suffering did not excuse their loyalty and obedience to him. That's what David is saying. We've suffered. We've remained loyal to you. We've obeyed you. And in the suffering, we've never used it as an excuse to break our loyalty to you. He says suffering did not excuse their loyalty and obedience to him. You know what David was saying? I'm reminded of what Paul shares in Romans chapter 8. He says nothing can separate us, is what David is saying, from the love of God. Amid the defeat, amid the trial, amid how we feel right now in despair. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life. David was in the valley of death. He says what? We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, for your sake. We continue to remain faithful to you and this is the result. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what David is saying. Amid the trial, amid the defeat, amid, amid these nations coming up against us, nothing has been able to separate our obedience and loyalty to you, is what he's saying. Now what happens in verse 23, he says, awake, this is his cry, awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help. And redeem us for your, for your mercy's sake. Here's a prayer and a cry for help. He says, awake and arise. Right? David did not think that God was asleep, of course, but he felt the way because of his present circumstances. Right? Haven't you and I felt that way before? We're crying out to God, Lord, I'm going through this circumstance, this situation in my life, and I feel, Lord, that you're asleep. Where are you? Arise. Awake. Meet my need. I've seen you do it in the past, and like the worship song says, do it again. He says, Lord, arise. Awake. He felt that God had forsaken and forgotten a faithful and obedient Israel. Lord, you've forsaken us. We've been obedient. We've been loyal to you. 
And having explained all that had happened to Israel, instead of losing his hope in God or becoming angry with him, as we sometimes do, he continues to trust God in the pain and suffering. Right? Arise for our help, verse 26, and redeem us for your mercy's sake. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to just turn my back on you, Lord. Because amid the trial, I feel like you're asleep. Amid the trial, you're not responding to my present need. Therefore, I'm going to go somewhere else. He says, no, no, arise for our help. Redeem us for your mercy's sake. His final cry for deliverance is based upon what is not, is based upon, is not based upon what Israel deserved. David's last cry for deliverance was not based upon what Israel deserved, but upon what they were taught by their fathers. What did their fathers teach them? What David is saying is deliver us as you did to our fathers solely because of your countenance, solely because of your grace, solely because of your favor, solely because of your right arm, not because we deserve it. What does it say in verse 26? Redeem us for your mercy's sake. The NIV reads this verse this way, rise up and help us, rescue us because of your unfailing love. Lord, because of your unfailing love, because of your mercy's sake, rescue us, redeem us, deliver us. Not because we deserve it, but because we want your countenance and your favor toward us. This is why. And although he claimed Israel's faithfulness, his cry for help was based upon the mercy of God, not the obedience of Israel. Right? He says that Israel has been obedient and loyal to the Lord, but he doesn't say, Lord, deliver us and help us. Arise and awake. We have been obedient, therefore you owe us. No. No. He says, Lord, for your mercy's sake, for your unfailing love, because your unfailing love, because of your mercy, because of your grace, rescue us, deliver us, arise and awake. We're not deserving of it, but because of your love. He remains steadfast, loyal, faithful to him. What did Job say amid all the trials that Job was going through? Job 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is David and the nation of Israel remaining faithful amid the trial, remaining faithful and obedient and loyal to the Lord amid defeat. The nation's disappointments did not become an excuse for their disobedience. How many times have the disappointments in our lives become an excuse for our disobedience towards the Lord? David said, no, 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 Lord, I'm going to remain faithful. We've, we've not forgotten you. We've not forgotten your covenant and your promise. We've been loyal. We've not stretched our hands to foreign gods or to idols. They remain loyal to God and put their trust in him to deliver them, to deliver them. And look what happens in, in chapter 45 now. It's a beautiful psalms. We're going to see the glory of a king, and we're later going to find out that the king is the Messiah, Jesus. But we also see in this messianic psalm, not only the glory of the king Jesus, of King Jesus, but also of his bride, the church, me and you, and the ceremony that's to take place. Look what happens, verse 1. <clears throat> My heart is overflowing with good theme, this is David writing. It's overflowing with joy as I recite my composition concerning the king. I'm writing this and I feel joyful. I'm excited about what I'm writing about, the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer, he says. You are fairer than the sons of men. This is what David is saying about the king. He says, you are beautiful, more than the sons of men. 
Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This is a poetic description of the king. He is praised for who he is and what he does. For who he is and what he does. You are fairer. You're more beautiful than the sons of men. You know what David is describing upon of this king? He's speaking of the nature and the character of Jesus. Far beyond the beauty of any other man, he says. Right? Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Why do we know he's speaking about the character of Jesus when he speaks about his beauty? Because Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would be of ordinary appearance. You guys remember that he had to be pointed out by Judas. When Judas betrayed him, he had to be pointed out with a kiss because he was an ordinary man like the rest of the 12 disciples. Actually, at that time, there was 11 because Judas was on the other side. But he had to be pointed out. And oftentimes, Jesus, as you remember, he would hide amid the crowd when they tried to arrest him. He looked ordinary. But here David is describing the king as beautiful, far beyond all the other sons of men. Right? Isaiah says about the appearance of Jesus prophetically, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground, for he has no form of comeliness, and we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire of him. He's going to be ordinary looking. Right? And then... What's the beauty that David is speaking about here in verse 2? He says, grace is poured upon his lips, therefore God has blessed him forever. The beauty of the king is displayed by grace upon his lips, not his appearance. John chapter 1 verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's the beauty about the new covenant. Here's the beauty of king, the Messiah, right? That grace came forth from his lips. When reading out of Isaiah in the synagogue concerning himself, right? Jesus read uh, in the synagogue out of Isaiah. And he says, what I just read to you in Isaiah is concerning myself. And then it says in Luke chapter 4 verse 22 that all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that came out of his lips. Isn't this the son of Joseph, they asked? In his lips, David says, grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed your name forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, for your, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. See, he's not only a beautiful uh, king with grace on his lips, but he's also a king ready for war, is what David is saying. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. This is the king who he's talking about, right? He's also a king ready for war. He's a mighty one armed with the sword. The vision of John in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, about Jesus coming back on a white horse. He says, Now I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. David, think about the picture that David is describing. Think about the picture of the vision of John. He judges and makes war. That's the king that he's describing here. And he says, and your majesty, you ride prosperly because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. The king is full of majesty, of royalty, and of blessing. Because from his lips flow truth, humility, and righteousness. In ancient Israel, and he says, that's why he says, in your right hand shall teach you awesome things. 
And at this time, a right hand spoke of a person's strength and skill, the right hand. The exercise of the king's strength and skill teaches him awesome things. In Hebrew chapter 5 verse 8, it says this, Though he was son, Jesus, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. His strength and skill taught him obedience in the face of suffering. Submission. Because we know that Jesus went to the cross not willingly, obediently. Right? We read that in the Bible. He didn't go willingly. Three different times. He said, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Three different times if there's another way for this cup to pass. Right? He learned obedience in the face of suffering. He says, your right hand will teach you awesome things. You know what's the skill and ability of Jesus? Humility and submission. Surrender before the Father's will. That was his skill. That was his ability that taught him awesome things. Obedience. And then he says, your arrows. Right? Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemy, the peoples fall under you. His strength brings the world into submission under him, is what David is saying. And look what happens in verse 6. Your throne, O God. Now he calls this king God. Your throne, O God. This king is not just an ordinary king now. He just called them God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's eternal. He refers to God as the exalted and is exalted and praised forever and ever. Jesus is the eternal king, enthroned God. Enthroned God. And what does he say about him? He says, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. A scepter is a staff, a symbol of authority for a king. They would carry it. And that was a symbol of their authority, right, that the king had. Well, he says, Jesus, your scepter, your staff of authority is righteousness. He says, the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, of gladness more than your companions. More than your companions. See, because of his great righteousness, Jesus, the king, God has anointed the Messiah with the blessing of joy. That's what it says, with the oil of gladness. Despite the work of sorrow and of the cross that Jesus went through, Jesus was satisfied with the oil of gladness over his companions. He, he's speaking about the superiority of Jesus over the angels, angelic hosts. But look how beautiful this verse is because he says, therefore, God, your God. Wait a minute, he just called Jesus God, and then he says, Jesus, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. God, your God, has anointed you. God the Father has anointed, that's the Holy Spirit, you, the Son. He's speaking about the Trinity here. He, he speaks about the, the triune God, right? And we can understand this now because we have the New Testament. But he says, we see, we, here we see God the Father, the Holy Spirit, anointing God the Son. David describes the three persons of the Trinity here. God the Father, your God, you being the Son, has anointed you, the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what he says, has anointed you with gladness over your companions. Verse 8, all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia and of ivory, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. Kings, daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. He says, look at your, your garments, 
your robe. It's all royalty, right? And you are surrounded, your companions, you're surrounded by royalty. King's daughters are now coming here to a ceremony. He says, ivory palaces. This speaks of a king that is not only from earth, but comes from heaven, right? Multiple beautiful palaces. He says, and, he, and this king is surrounded by royalty. What is he says? King's daughters are among your honorable woman, and at your right hand stands the queen. Who's the queen? The bride. Who's the bride? The church. The church. The king is surrounded by royalty, and at his right hand stands the queen. See, look at, look at this picture here that David is, is showing us. Jesus stands at the right hand of the father in royalty, and the queen stands at the right hand of Jesus, the groom, in gold, in beauty, in beauty, ready for the wedding to begin. This is beautiful. He says, king's daughters are among you. Here's the bridesmaids now. Here's the bridesmaids. Look what happens, verse 10. Listen, O daughter. Now David turns his attention to the bride. To the church. He's speaking first about the king, about God, about Jesus, and now he turns his attention to the bride. He says, Listen now, a daughter, consider and incline your ear. I'm gonna give you advice. He says, Forget your own people and also your father's house. Does that sound familiar? What do we read in Genesis chapter 2? For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother to do what? To become one, right? To become one flesh. Right? He's speaking about the union of marriage. And what David is saying to the bride, leave, forget your own people also, and your father's house. Why? Because it's time for you to become one with the Messiah, one with the king, one with Jesus. And isn't that true of us? In order for us to have this communion and relationship with the Lord, aren't we supposed to? What did Jesus say? If, you don't, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Isn't this the beautiful picture of marriage? This is what David is saying, right? Uh, forget your own people also and your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. He says, think about the, the beauty of the bride. Jesus is looking at the bride and he says, she is beautiful and I greatly desire her. I greatly desire her. But not only is Jesus the bridegroom, but he says what? Because he is your Lord, worship him. He is your Lord, worship him. Not only is the king the bride's husband, but also her Lord and worthy to be worshipped. Worthy to be worshipped. He says, this is your king. We're getting ready for the ceremony. Not only is he your bridegroom, but he's also your Lord and you must worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift, and the rich among the people will seek your favor. What is he saying to the bride now? That because she's married to the anointed king, the Messiah, it will bring benefits to her as a bride. She will be gifted from nations, and even the rich will seek favor from her. Right? Normally people seek favor from the rich, but the king has placed the bride in a position for the rich, for the rich to seek favor from her. The bride of Christ, right? And then what happens, verse 13, it says, the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Look how he speaks of her. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors, a beautiful dress, right? The virgins or the bridesmaids are her companions who follow her. 
They shall be brought to you, to the king, with gladness and rejoicing that shall be brought, and they shall enter the king's palace. And then what happens here? Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. And I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the people shall praise you forever and ever. A blessing is pronounced now at the wedding ceremony of Jesus and the bride. A blessing is pronounced. What's this blessing? Over the marriage of the king and his bride, over the marriage of Jesus and the church. Here's the blessing. This is that the union will bring forth sons that are to reign over all the earth. Isn't that the promise that me and you have, right, with Jesus? That will one day be caught up, raptured, and then the church will come back and reign forever and ever with him? This is the promise. He says, shall bring forth sons whom you shall make princesses in all the earth. And I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. The result of the anointed king marrying his bride is that he's exalted forever and ever and ever. And that's why we're going to marry him one day as the church, as the bride of Christ. To do what? To praise his name forever and ever and ever. That's the result there. Now look what happens in chapter 46 as we finish here. Beautiful chapter here. The God of Jacob, our hiding place. That's the title of tonight. The God of Jacob, our hiding place. We're going to see here three different Three different things. God is our hiding place. He is the God of heaven and the God of man. And lastly, be still and know him. Be still and know him. Look what happens in verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and through the mountains, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with his swelling. Look at that. Because God is my strength, I will not fear any calamity, catastrophe, or disaster, is what David is saying. He says, although uh, the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, and the mountains shake in its swelling. He's speaking of natural disasters here. David begins the psalm speaking of God's provision and protection. He says, God is what? Our refuge and strength. God had been for Israel the refuge, a hiding place. You guys remember that the nation of Israel has cities of refuge that existed for protection of fugitives in Israel? They would run to these cities of refuge and they'd have the protection of God. That was their hiding place. Well, God had been that for the nation of Israel as a whole. The refuge, their hiding place. He had protected them. He protects us. He is our refuge. Our hiding place. God had been their strength both in them and for them. He says you are refuge and strength. David proclaims that God alone has been this for him and Israel. It has never been God and something else. God you are our refuge. You are our strength. You are our hiding place. God had been to them a help. What does it say? A very present help in trouble. And not only a help, not a distant help. What does he say? A very present help in time of trouble. See, the confidence of David was in the consciousness of the nearness of God. You're a very present help in time of trouble. He was certain of this regardless of how he felt. 
What does that mean? That sometimes we're going through trials and tribulations and we say, God, you're our refuge and our strength. But I just don't feel you right now. Feel you. David is saying, I am certain that you're a very present help in time of trouble. Right? It was, David's confidence was in the consciousness of the nearness of God regardless of how he felt. And this is proper biblical theology. When the truths about God supersede our feelings and emotions. The truths about God. I read his word. It says, his word says that he's a very present help in time of trouble. I don't feel him, but that doesn't matter. Because the word of God says that he's a very present help in time of trouble. Is the consciousness of the nearness of God, regardless if I feel him in my time of trouble. David is saying. God is my refuge and strength and near help. Then I have no reason to fear. Therefore, we will not fear, he says. And then David imagines the imaginable, right? The circumstances. He says his confidence for protection was in Christ. And he says Christ and God is greater than any calamity, greater than any disaster. And check this out for us. If David was here today, he said God is greater than any global pandemic. He says although, although the... Uh, he says, although the mountains would be moved into the sea, or the waters roar, or there'd be a global pandemic, my God is greater. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is a very present help. I have a consciousness of his nearness in my life, regardless of how I feel. These are the attributes and characters of God, and that does not change. God is greater than all of these. David understood that you cannot hide from the dangers or the trials of life, but your life can be secured in God. Hidden in Christ, our hiding place. Colossians 3, verse 3, it says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Look at that promise that we have. He says, although all these things will take place, we cannot hide from the dangers of life and the trials and the tribulations, but we can hide and be secured in Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our refuge, our hiding place. He is our strength, our very present help in time of trouble. This is what David is saying. There is a river, verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. He's speaking about the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem to come, because the present Jerusalem, even till today, does not have a river running through it. Right? He's speaking about the Jerusalem to come. He's imagining it. The city of God, he says. Is, and God is in the midst of her. He dwells there. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn, just at the morning. And the nations raged as they continue to rage today against her, against Israel. Right? The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. So God's going to continue to protect her because he is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in time of trouble. And regardless of the nations raging, right, regardless of all these things taking place, coming against the nation of Israel, his city, as it says, right, uh, the, the, the city of God, the holy place, the tabernacle of the Most High God, he says that he will, he uttered his voice and the earth melted before him. That's what's going to take place, right? And then what happens in verse 7? The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our refuge. This is so comforting as I studied it. The God of refuge 
I'm sorry, the God of Jacob is a refuge. See, he is the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven and of angels' armies. That's what he's saying. The Lord of hosts. What host? The host of heaven, of the angels. He's the Lord of angels' armies. But he's not only the Lord of the angels, or he's not only the Lord of heaven and of the world. That seems too big. That seems too far. That seems too distant. He's also the Lord of Jacob, of you and I. Because what do we know about Jacob in the Bible? He was the deceiver. He deceived his brother alongside with his mom. He deceived his father to earn the birthright and the blessing and to steal it from his brother. Then when he got married, he married multiple women. He favored one over the other. Then he favored some, some children over the others. Eventually they sold one. He doesn't have a good reputation, biblically speaking. And if God can be the God of Jacob, then, I'm, then, then David is saying that I'm sure that he can be the God of you and I. He's not only the God of angels' armies and of heaven and of the world, but he's also the God of Jacob, our refuge. Wow. He says you're not only the God of angels' armies and of heaven and of all these hosts, you're also the God of Jacob. And if you can be the God of Jacob, then I'm certain that you can be my God as well. Verse 8, come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars, seas to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. What does he say in the first few verses? The emphasis is on God, our refuge and strength. Now David wants us to consider his great glory. He says, come, behold the works of the Lord who makes desolations in the earth. When these nations, when they rage against Israel, what does he do? He makes desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease. He enforces and brings peace. And one day he's going to do that when these nations rage against Israel. What is he going to do? He's going to wipe them out. He's going to make desolate of these nations and bring and enforce peace. He brings the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. The exhortation here, we see that, that God is going to bring peace, that God is going to bring these nations to desolation, right? He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, but look at the great works. He's also the God of angels' armies. He's also the God of Jacob, therefore he can be the God of you and the God of I, right? And then what does he say? He's going to bring peace in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Wow. This is God now speaking. He says, be still and know that I am God. God is mighty and powerful to make desolations of nations and to enforce peace. As he says in verse 9. The exhortation here is that amid the trials, the dangers, the disasters of this world, and we're going through many right now in our country, in our world, in our state, God is our refuge. God is our strength. Amid the wars and the rumors of wars and those that are to come against Israel as they continue today, God is all too powerful to make desolate and to bring peace. So what is your problem to him tonight? So what is our circumstance this evening before him? What does he say? What does is, what is God himself say? Be still and know that I am God. You cannot be still if you don't know him. 
right? You have to know the character, the attributes, and the power. Know the glory of God, and therefore you can be still. What are the character and the attributes of God? You can only be still once you've recognized the greatness, the majesty, the glory, and the power of Almighty God. When the earth and the mountains of your life are moved, He is your refuge and your strength. When the natural disasters of life and the waters roar against your life, as it said in the first few verses, He is your very present help in trouble. When the nations start to rage and the kingdoms are moved and war breaks out, His voice voice makes the earth melt and makes war cease. Be still and know that He is God. And listen, we might not know what lays ahead tomorrow in our life, in our country, or in the world, but we know how the story ends as believers. We know how it ends. God will be exalted among the nations and the earth. He will reign. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is a refuge. God's going to be exalted among the nations, among our life. He's going to reign We know how the story ends. Therefore, who shall I fear? Psalms 27, verse 1, same writer. David says, the Lord is the light of my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He is my refuge. He's my strength. He's my very present help in time of trouble. He makes the the, the, the earth desolate. He brings peace. And he says, be still and know me. Know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. Right? If I know God, then I can be still. This is what David is saying. This is what God is saying. Know me. Be still and know that I am God. If I am, if I am uncertain tonight of a present situation in my life, he is near, a very present help in time of trouble. And I may not know, you may not know what the future may hold, But tonight what God is saying, be certain of who holds your future. The God of Jacob, your hiding place. Let's go ahead and pray.